Hello and welcome to this premium podcast of the Lotus Eaters. I hope you're all sat comfortably at home with your paperwork filmed out. We will be expecting a 27B stroke six to have been filled out before you can enter, as Josh and I are about to talk about the 1985 Terry Gilliam film, Brazil, which is a story talking about the horrors of living in a bureaucratic nightmare. I, for one, can't relate. Could you, Josh? No, well... It's such a dystopian film. I mean, there's there's no commentary about the present day whatsoever. No, not at all. It's totally just another sci-fi dystopian future fiction. Imagine what the world could be like if we lived like this. Am I right? <laughs> no, it's horrifyingly relevant. It was horrifyingly relevant back in 1985 when it was released. And it's even more relevant today, as Terry Gilliam himself has pointed out a number of times in some of the interviews that I've been watching in preparation for this. One of them, he explicitly stated, you know, we released the film and then bureaucracy was destroyed. We did it, right, guys? It's not even worse now than it was then, is it? No, it's it's far worse now. What were your thoughts on the film? Have you watched it before? Uh, of, of course. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> it'd be difficult to talk about it if I hadn't watched it. I didn't it. mean in preparation for this. I mean prior oh, to the right. preparation. Uh, no, I hadn't, actually. <laughs> I'm Although... not just expecting you to sit there and discuss a film that you've not watched. <laughs> I was a bit taken aback by the question. No, I haven't, but I've seen lots of Terry Gilliam's films before, and I was looking forward to this one because I think many of his films are great, and I'm a big fan of his work, and this was sort of a gap in his work that I needed to fill. But This is, this is a very relevant one, because typically in the Terry Gilliam filmography, the pantheon of his films, people either put this or 12 Monkeys at the top of his filmography. Well, my personal choice would be Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, but I think that's one of my favourite films of all time, so... Well, it's all semi-autobiographical for you, surely. I suppose so. You've done yeah. everything in there, just not in Las Vegas. <laughs> Maybe. I plead the fifth. <laughs> uh, but yes, I thought the film was interesting. It was certainly very unique. I liked that it wasn't just a, a boring carbon copy Hollywood film. It actually had some flair and individuality to it. And I think that even if you're just watching it for that on its own, it's entertaining. Um, there were some elements of it that I thought were uh, a, a bit unusual, not in a sort of absurdist sense. I love sort of absurdist humor and weirdness, the, the sort of Python-esque thing. That... Well, it's explicit. Well, he was a Python. Well, yes, exactly. <laughs> but Michael Palin's in it as well. Mm -hmm. I think John Cleese shows up in a few of his other films. I know the film he did after this one, Baron Munchausen, has, uh, uh, what's his name, Eric Idle? Yeah. Yeah, he's in that one as well. Mm -hmm. Always gets his buddies in. Yes. What was I saying? Ah, yes. Um, there were some things that I just felt like um, were at odds with one another. And I think the, the main thing about the film that I felt perhaps didn't work, and I, I did enjoy it, so I'm mostly positive towards the film, was that it was trying to paint this dystopia whilst also being a comedy. And I find that those two together don't necessarily complement one another, at least in the way in which it was done here in some instances. Sometimes it does work, like the actual absurdity of it, the absurdity of the bureaucracy, of the, the dystopia, although I don't think it's a dystopian film. I think it's a satire, actually. I think it gets incorrectly labeled. Harry Gilliam agrees with you there. He does, yes. I, I actually came up you know, with that, that opinion my, myself and then went through an interview with him at the time the film came out, and he more or less said the same thing. So I was just like, well, at least I watched and understood the film as sort of intended. And um, yeah, particularly sort of some of the, the, the dream sequences where um, he's flying around in a, 
quite a effeminate wingsuit. It's rather garish, a, isn't it? Yeah. Rescuing a, a blonde babe. And I was just like, what is this? I mean, it, it seems so um, cheesy that it, it, it may well have been for kind of deliberate effect, as in that they were trying to make it I think it was for the contrast, but I, yeah. I will agree that the dream sequences are a little bit hokey as mm. the film goes through. Particularly, there's one extended part of the dream sequence wherein he fights a mechanical samurai, which, honestly, I just tune my brain out a little bit because Terry Gilliam, for everything I love about him and his films, is not an action director. And so seeing an extended fight sequence between Jonathan Price in a clearly very difficult to maneuver in suit, waving about a sword he has no idea how to use properly against a mechanical samurai that looks very bulky. And once again, whoever's in that suit, quite difficult to move around in. It, it was one of those things where I was watching it going, okay, I get the message, or this is supposed to be symbolizing the samurai being the inhuman mechanisms of the bureaucracy trying to destroy the indomitable human spirit. I don't need five minutes of terrible-looking fighting and mm. weird camera angles to show me this. Yeah, I, I agree. Although I did enjoy the scene because even though it was a bit cheesy, I, I kind of like... You liked the sh schlock element of it, did you? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm the kind of person that watches really bad horror films just because I find them amusing and entertaining. I've done that many a time. And I, I kind of like to see a badly made thing for the comedy element of it and I really enjoy it. It's why I like the film The Room, for example. I did not hit her. It's not true. It's bullshit. I did not hit her. I did not. Oh, hi, Mark. Is that it's so bad, it's good. I, I like that in a film. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, this is... I don't mean to derail the conversation. Something on that note has just popped into my head that has... It was like a hidden memory. There's a little treasure trove and you just knocked <laughs> Not the debris of my mind off it and uncovered it for me. So thank you very much for that. So do you remember the old Tesco's? Obviously, Tesco's still around in England where you could go to the DVD section that's vastly, vastly reduced these days. Yes. And they would have an entire section that would just be random direct-to-DVD films that you've never heard of. Myself and my friends back in the day, back in probably 10 years ago, 2013, were wandering around the Tesco one day and found that section and in it was one of the most glorious things that I have ever seen. It was a film called Oh Zombie. Oh Zombie. Oh Zombie, following the ex exploits of Zombie Bin Laden. Oh. <laughs> and we had a great time drinking <laughs> and laughing along to that <laughs> film as it went on. Sorry, but you've just reminded me of the kind of absolute <laughs> rubbish that you used to be able to find because mm -hmm. a bad horror film is glorious. I, I feel bad even bringing those sorts of films up because this isn't that. Like, it's a, it's a well-directed Oh, it's brilliantly film. done. And, you know, it's visually very interesting. You know, you're not going to be bored and you're not going to think, why am I watching this? As you might some of those other films. So I, I feel a little no, bit uncharitable. not. But there was like a little sprinkling of... of of that in there. There was, and that's probably due to one, um, Terry Gilliam's own experience in directing those kinds of sequences and also just the budget constraints as well. Mm -hmm. uh, but to go back to your original point about how you don't feel that comedy and dystopia or comedy and um, this kind of dystopia uh, mix well together, I think for the most part throughout this film it does. All of the parts that are supposed to be funny and jokes 
really land for me. And that's because of the fact that, to me, there's no real jokes that feel out of place. It's mm. all there to highlight the absurdity well, of the situation. That yeah, I, I don't think the jokes are out of world. place. They, they didn't necessarily um, take me by surprise or did, I thought they were unreasonable or things like that. And they were a welcome respite from some of the dystopian elements. I just felt like they should have done more to build the sort of existential terror of the dystopia in the first place. I felt like there wasn't enough to establish it. And because of how detached the character is, uh, the main character... To begin with, at least. Yeah. It, it kind of lulls you into a certain amount of comfort with it. And that, that's fine, but you've got to then break that out. And because of the comedy, it felt like um, there weren't as high stakes if you're, you know, to to compare it to say 1984, which Gilliam did himself, uh, he he said he'd never read that book. Yeah, uh, and it was just film, a, it was a coincidence that the film was released the same year. Or he should have just, just called it 1985. Before. Really, I mean, uh, uh, supposedly from what he was saying, uh, the original name for it was going to be 1984 and a half. I did see that, yeah, which is quite clever. Mm -hmm. But I think that would also be a bit of a mistake because it'd be drawing a false parallel between yes. the two. Because you know, it's, it's not actually a dystopian film, really. And they, and they do present two different types of dystopia, if you want to call mm -hmm. them that. Because obviously 1984 is just a straight-up dystopia. It is, yeah. This is, this is much more of a, a satire where it takes the elements of the real world that Gilliam hated and despised, that being the overwhelming levels of bureaucracy and the way that it drains people of their humanity and exaggerates all of those to cartoonish degree. And I think what you're talking about there with um, how the character of Sam is detached to begin with, um, I, I, and then he slowly becomes more invested, I do think personally that helps to ramp up the tension and ramp up the seriousness of the subject matter as the narrative goes on. Because with Sam, who, uh, who, who's the main character played by Jonathan Price, who's just some worker drone, well, probably the most competent worker drone, working in the Department of Forms, is it? Something like that. Um, requisitions, whatever it is. Uh, Each Department of Information Acquisition, uh, isn't it? Uh, it's the Ministry of Information. See, yeah. even within the film, like in real life, all of the departments just blur together into a big mush. I believe, of all people, it was Michael Gove who, when he was describing the Tory party's connection to all of these think tanks and all of the documents that they produce and how they intertwine with one another, just called it the blob. And that's he's what... He's not wrong there. No, he's not wrong at all because all of these departments are very confusing in how they relate to one another and all of the minute little processes and, uh, and, and uh, alleyways that you have to navigate through mm -hmm. to be able to interact with each of these. So he's just an office drone who is... His mother does seem to be quite high up in the society. And his father is pretty much stated to have possibly been in charge at some point. But because of the fact that this world that you exist in within Brazil, which is stated to be the United Kingdom on some of the forms, um, is basically run entirely by soulless bureaucrats. Even the man at the top, Helpman, just acts as though he's just another bureaucrat who, oh, well, I'm just here in the system. I might be the guy who's ultimately in charge, but I'm just another guy. I just fill out paperwork just like the rest of you. So nobody takes charge of anything. And that's one of the great recurring jokes throughout the whole thing. Mm -hmm. Especially, I do wish you had more of him. Ian Holmes' character, Kurtzman, his boss in the original department you see him in, he is such a wonderful parody of the pathetic worms that <laughs> occupy middle management in bureaucratic departments. Mm. 
everything that his job is, is just to try and defer work to somebody else. That sounds very familiar, yeah. Yes, it really does. Even to the point where he stamps his hand on a desk and says, oh, I might have broken my finger. Can you, can you sign my signature for me on this? Which later on in the film, Sam ends up getting thrown as, as one of his charges after he's arrested. <laughs> what, doing the signature? I didn't pick up on that. Oh, when, he's, when you get that horrifying scene, because once again, I think the, the comedy is there to make it so that you're not so depressed watching the film, because otherwise... I, I want to be depressed. Oh, well, <laughs> I, I want unrelenting misery and suffering if I've got a sort of dystopian... Uh, Gil- Gilliam himself has said that he, like, he adds in the comedy, probably as a reflex because of his mm. history within Monty Python, um, as, to, as like a bit of sugar, a spoonful of sugar to help the medicine go down, is what he always says in the interviews that I've seen. So, and, and that is one of those things, like you say, that makes it so that you're not sat there depressed and dour the entire time because the film has a great energy to mm-hmm. it. But Could you imagine the film The Road if they all of a sudden had gags in it? Obviously, I've not the watched book. The Road. Oh, it's like one of the most depressing films and books. Well, Ter- Terry Gilliam has a film that I've not watched, but I've heard about called Tideland, which follows the exploits of a young girl and her father when they move out to um, a-, a house in the middle of nowhere. And I watched the trailer for it last night. It's quite interesting because it had all of the same hallmarks of his direction that you see with Brazil, you know, the high energy, the quirky camera angles, the uh, slightly off-kilter performances. Mm-hmm. But it, the, her dad, played by Jeff Bridges, is a heroin addict, and there are scenes wherein the young daughter helps him to take heroin. Oof. So obviously harrowing subject matter, whilst at the same time presenting it in such a way that probably makes it a bit more palatable. And yeah. Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, your favorite film, has some pretty harrowing stuff in it. But yeah. the energy that is throughout his films, I would say most of his films have a sort of electric energy to them. I would say Helps. Fear and Loathing is sort of like a, a sort of complementary film to this one, in a, in a sense. In that, I've not watched it in a long time, so I mostly remember those first few scenes when they're driving through the desert, pick mm-hmm. up Tobey Maguire, and then when they get into the hotel lobby. Yeah. And they're stumbling about and see everybody as dinosaurs and lizards. So mm-hmm. you'll have to explain to me why it is that you think because it's relevant. Because the, the plot of Brazil, um, as it goes on, becomes increasingly like a fever dream, more or less. Yes. And Fear and Loathing has a similar sort of style to it. Although, of course, this is written deliberately into it by Tom- Thompson himself, Hunter S. Thompson, the author of the book that um, the film of the same namesake um, is, is made about. and so. It, it served that film a bit better, I think, because this one, if, if everything is a dream, nothing is really real, and you feel like it, there's a sort of comedic element, and so the stakes are not so high for the characters, then it doesn't really matter that it's a dystopia in the first place, because you're so removed from having an emotional investment in b- real believable characters that it's kind of a spectacle rather than like you're going on a journey alongside them because you've got to suspend your disbelief and that also suspends your emotional connection with the characters and it reduces the the significance of their plight on screen. Like I, I watched um, Sam's breakdown towards the end of the film um, with a sort of cool detachment almost. I mean, I, I was just thinking, what are you doing? Like you've turned up looking scruffy. 
you obviously know that's going to invite trouble. I think I, I think that this might just be your aloof snobbishness shining through. But he doing what he does. He it's like he had just given up. Um, I, I, well, I, I think keeping face. It, it it was just lots of things about it that seemed to me. I mean, uh, you've not got consistent with the character. No, I th- I think it's a ramping up of the tension, and you see him cracking mm-hmm. as the film goes on. Uh, because obviously, at first, he's just another soulless worker drone, as you see everybody else behaving like in the rest of the film. It's just that he's a more competent worker drone. He's very intelligent. He comes from a, quite a privileged background, but he's choosing explicitly to maintain himself in a lower department. So essentially, he doesn't have to do anything with his life. Um, there's that scene where he's in the restaurant with his mother and uh, her friends, where she says, you must have something that you want because she's been trying to get him a promotion. Don't you have any dreams? And he says, no, I don't have any dreams. And you immediately cut to a dream sequence. (laughs) So it's obviously supposed to be the ironic contrast of Mm -hmm. actually he does. I I thought that was actually quite well done. Yes, it, it, it was quite well done. And that's the sequence it cuts to as well is probably my favorite of those dream sequences. Certainly the most effective one where he's flying through the open English fields and you can see the countryside and then each of the, and then all of a sudden, all of the tower blocks begin to pa- uh, just uh, yeah. uh, come out of the ground and uh, block his view when he's trying to get to uh, the woman that he's after in his dreams. That's the most effective one for me in the symbolism and the actual sequence that it shows. Although, sadly, I watched a behind-the-scenes documentary about the film called What is Brazil? Because a lot of people, when they first heard about the film, said, why is it called Brazil? And it's actually named after the musical piece that's the main theme of the film. Mm-hmm. I did um, read about that, and supposedly Terry Gilliam was in an, on an industrial beach in Wales, and he saw loads of iron ore just discarded on the beach. And he, I think he either said he imagined someone doing it, um, like just sat on the beach with some sort of exotic, sort of South American, sort of Latin style, upbeat music in this very dreary and miserable atmosphere. And that was what kind of, struck him with the idea of, of doing the film and calling it Brazil in particular. Yeah, I, I like that. But um, uh, the, in that, they show scenes, little shots from a dream sequence that ended up getting cut out of the film. And it's a real shame because I think it would have been the best one where Sam is flying through the sky and he's approaching a tower. And as he gets to the tower, you can see that I think it's the sun is a giant eyeball watching him. Like Sauron, yeah. Like Sauron. And then he lands on this little uh, stone tower and looks around him and sees that all of the landscape has been replaced by eyeballs, which all slowly turn to look at him. And I think that would have been a really good dream sequence to include mm. somewhere in the film. I still think they could have fit it in the film, even though they ended up editing it out, because that's a real shame that that ended up on the cutting room floor. Um, but no, I, I, I generally like the way that the film is structured mm-hmm. and the way that Sam cracks. I think it is authentic to him because, as I was saying, so he starts out like that and then you have the situation where Buttle gets killed rather than Tuttle. Well, Tuttle is supposed to be tortured, but it's Buttle and the document that uh, Jack Lint receives says doesn't have anything about Buttle's heart condition and therefore, as he says, let me see if I can get the quote because I've got a few quotes written down here. Uh, that's it. Jack Lint says when um, Sam interrogates him about 
why did you kill Buttle? He says, information transit got the wrong man. I got the right man. The wrong one was delivered to me as the right man. I accepted him on good faith as the right man. Was I wrong? It's not my fault that Buttle's heart condition didn't appear on Tuttle's record. That's fantastic. There's just <laughs> the level of bureaucratic inhumanity displayed in just a few sentences there. I might have killed someone, but it's because the paperwork was wrong. It's not my fault. I might be doing something terrible and inhuman, mm-hmm. but <laughs> the paperwork was wrong, so it's not my fault. That did stick out to me. And part of the reason it stuck out to me is that there is some kind of weird truth to what he's saying, in a sense, in that, you know, you can, you can justify that to yourself as being... It's, some- it's the level of abstraction yeah. that he's taken from his own personal responsibility for his, the actions that he's doing in the first place, that being that he is a government torturer mm. for um, looking to interrogate in, and extract information from supposed potential terrorists who are part of a terrorist organization that obviously doesn't exist. Yeah, and um, <laughs> we, we definitely need to get onto the terrorist organization at some point. But yes. I, I kind of liked the fact that it seemed like the the most real-world excuse for what he'd done, I've, I've heard. It, it sounded like a public statement, almost, that you would see in the press, that sort of language. Like a Tory comes out and says yeah. it. Yeah, n- no one talks like that ever, but we're just meant to overlook the fact that when someone apologizes, they all of a sudden turn into you know, bureaucratatron 3000 and use this really inhuman language to talk about their own motivations in such an inhuman way that it just makes you sound like you're some sort of psychopath. Yes, uh, but going back to Sam's story arc, so he's trying to maintain himself in this bureaucratic state of mind. And then as part of that, because of issues with the department that he's in, they end up with the check that's supposed to be refunded to Tuttle. Sorry, Buttle. Even I'm getting it mixed up now. It's supposed to go to Buttle, and then they're unable to do so because it turns out that he's dead. And Kurtzman, Ian Holmes' character, has the fantastic moment where he's saying, I've checked through all of the different departments. This one's saying that he's been completed. This one's saying that he's been discharged. This one, you've got all these bureaucratic terms for it. And Sam just quickly checks the computer and just goes, he's dead. That's what he is. Because once again, in the bureaucracy, you don't want to have to use terms that people understand as having some kind of emotional value to them. You need to use the robotic, artificial terms that strip it of all emotional and moral content to it. So he ends up having to go to Mrs. Buttle's flat, where is, which is where he first runs into Jill, the woman that he's been dreaming about. But when he's there, he's suddenly confronted with the humanity of the whole thing. because she, she, she knows that she, her husband's dead, because why wouldn't he have come back yet if he wasn't already dead? And it was just a, a, a freak accident of, bureau, uh, of paperwork because some guy in an office somewhere smushed a fly on the ceiling. The fly fell into a typewriter and replaced the T in Tuttle with B and <laughs> turned it into Buttle. And there just happened to be an Archibald Buttle in the, in the city. So he ends up getting tortured instead. And she begins to scream at him, Why, uh, where is his body? What have you done with my husband's body? And I think that's when you first see him experience the actual humanity of the people outside of these spheres of bureaucracy that he it's, exists within. It's the and point it's- in which it clicks for him that his work does have real-world consequences because I think the way that bureaucracies generally function both in the film and in the real world is that people are so far removed from the actual consequences of their work that it just becomes a process. It's just a problem to be solved in the office and then you go home and you go to the real world and 
that there's almost a separation of the two things. And I think that that's um, the, the shattering of that. And he realizes actually, no, these are uh, both the same world. What I do has consequences, which is why all of a sudden his attitude towards what he does changes from that point on. Yes. And I see everything else that he does from that point, as well as discovering that the woman that he's been dreaming about is actually real and that fate has brought them together. And I think I, I will talk about that because I do have some issues with her character and their relationship. Same together. here. Yeah. Um, obviously, parts of the dream sequence aren't amazing, but I do overall understand its place within the narrative. My least favorite part of the film is Jill and her relationship with Sam. And I do think the middle portion of the film where the two of them are together and getting to know each other is probably the weakest part of the film. I, I would very much agree, yeah. Um, but yes, the, everything extends from that point and everything develops from that point as well. And also his meeting with Tuttle, the man who the Infor Ministry of Information was out to get in the first place. I wanted to see more of that guy. He seemed great. He, yeah, he was the, uh, the cameo appearance for three scenes from Robert De Niro. <laughs> who is the only reason this film got released in the state that it was in the first place because he was just a, he, he wanted to work with Terry Gilliam because he was a Monty Python fan mm -hmm. I would have wanted to work with Terry Gilliam as well he so I get that yeah. completely and he was like well I've not got a role for you except for Tuttle who appears in three scenes so De Niro reluctantly took it on and supposedly because of the fact he wasn't in a leading man role because of the fact that he wasn't used to playing smaller parts and films was really really nervous and they only had him scheduled to do a week originally. And he ended up doing like three weeks because he kept messing up all of his lines, which isn't something you expect to hear about Robert De Niro, especially no, yeah. mid-80s Robert De Niro when someone would see him as in his prime. Yeah, well, he's a great actor, isn't he? He's fantastic. And he'd already had a bunch of very successful films under his belt where he'd, he'd done, done some great performances, really, hadn't he? To watch the full video, please become a premium member at lotuseaters.com.